What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Esther, sometimes it's like being stuck deep inside my head and I can't get out. Other times I feel every thought and feeling needs to come out of me at the same time. Jonathan, with medication, I mostly just feel like me now. Before getting diagnosed, everything felt messed up. School, work, dating, two divorces, gambling problems, horrible driving, all were pre-diagnosis. Sarah, once I knew it was ADHD and I'm not crazy, I just have this different brain, and I got treatment, therapy, etc., it basically saved my life. Sex-wise, I used to not be able to settle into it, and now I enjoy it. And I'm not irritable or depressed or anxious half the time anymore. I honestly think being diagnosed saved my marriage. Each person's experience with ADHD is unique, and there are a lot of commonalities, too. I know this from personal experience, having been diagnosed about 11 years ago. I recently found some of my old childhood journals, and I could see ADHD all over the place. Early on, I wrote about my scrambled eggs head, and into adolescence and my teens, I can really see how hormonal changes paired with less access to physical activity, sitting in classrooms for longer periods of time, all made comprehending those classes about topics I wasn't interested in nearly impossible. When folks with ADHD are into something, though, we are really into it. And with the proper tools and treatments, that hyperfocus usually becomes less debilitating and we're less prone to complications like depression. Late diagnosis and misdiagnosis are especially common in Black and Latinx people, as well as people assigned female at birth. And of course, anything that impacts mental health, our moods, and the brain inevitably impacts sex, intimacy, and relationships. That's true whether we're neurodiverse or not. Thankfully, with greater understanding about this type of neurodivergence, which is another word for a less common type of brain, and getting whatever support we need, so much growth and pleasure and awesomeness are possible in the bedroom and everywhere. And ADHD can bring some mighty strengths to sex and relationships too. I recently spoke with Rachel Rose about her personal experience with ADHD and ways this disorder or brain type can influence sex and intimacy. Rachel is a chronically ill, disabled, queer and polyamorous, certified sex and relationship coach, educator, and consultant. You might know her from her award-winning blog, Hedonish, or Glittergasm Events, a company she co-founded that hosts inclusive and accessible 
sex-positive play parties for the LGBTQ community. Rachel and I both have the combined type of ADHD, which includes traits of the other two subtypes, known as hyperactive and inattentive. She was diagnosed in her early teens, and it was sort of an afterthought. She told me that her brother presented more of the stereotypical hyperactive boy symptoms that so many people associate with ADHD. And after he was tested, her parents thought, well, maybe Rachel should be tested too. Even after her diagnosis, Rachel wasn't as convinced. I didn't actually think I had it. And actually that went all the way through my 20s up until maybe like four or five years ago when I realized I might be like the poster child for it when I had a better understanding of what ADHD was. And it's funny because I, I used to just think like, oh, no, I'm like a head in the clouds kind of person. I'm just like artsy and creative and my class is boring. Why would I want to pay attention? Um, I'd much rather just like live in my head or doodle on my notebooks. You know, I did well in schools. And so I think that like I was like, I don't, I don't think I have this. I was medicated and I found the Adderall that I've been on for many, many years to be helpful with like waking up and getting other things in my life done. And so I was like, well, if they want to give this to me because they think I have this thing, sure, this works for me. Only to later in my 20s have a a therapist who also had ADHD and had done like a bunch of their like dissertation in that field and would like point out different things to me that I was saying. Um, And she would be like, oh, that's an ADHD trait or that's really common in this. And, And like it was in such a relatable way that I was like, oh, damn. I think I might be the post child. So I started digging in myself and learned all this stuff about it. And I'm like, and, and many people are like, there's so many characteristics that I think I thought were just like quirky personality traits that really are part of ADHD, but they're actually things I like about myself. They're things that like, you know, I think I identify with. I think there's a lot more to it that is presented like in literature perhaps, or in like, you know, when you see like a news report about it or something. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so great that you had a therapist who knew it so well because many therapists like if you don't specialize I've heard that you don't really you might have like a class on it you might know a little bit but it's very easy for people who don't really understand it fully to misinterpret things like oh that's a trauma response that you can't sit still or oh that's x y and z why don't you just make a list and follow your calendar. And you're like, uh, what? Why don't you just try harder? <laughs> cool. I hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> right. Easy. Sounds great. I'll start right now. So for anyone who is not really familiar with ADHD, maybe they've heard, oh, look, a squirrel. It's just about being distracted all the time and hyper. What is that more to it that you described? There's a lot of stuff that scientists, I think, are figuring out. And the research definitely hasn't caught up with like the fact that it impacts people of all genders and ages and everything. So there's, I think a lot that's still being researched, but what they believe it is, is actually it's like more of a dopamine dysregulation disorder. So what that means is people with ADHD have, they don't have enough dopamine to like get them to do the thing, whatever that thing is. And so where a neurotypical person would be like, oh, cool. I have like five things to do. I got to pay this bill. I need to walk the dog. I need to do the dishes and you know, whatever else it might be. People with ADHD don't have like the dopamine that actually gets you to get up and go do that thing. And so we're often really seeking dopamine. So things that bring us that are definitely going to catch our attention far more than things that do not. And boring menial tasks don't bring joy or dopamine to anybody. But sometimes we can get ourselves to do it. And I think a lot of people find these like little life hacks for it. So like um, if you have a bill you need to pay and let's say your, your, your partner goes on a trip for a few days and, is, and you're like, I'll pay it before you get back. 
And then of course you don't pay it at all. Uh, and they're getting home in like 12 minutes and they get new a call and they're like, I'm in the neighborhood. Suddenly you have, because there's all that extra buildup and stress behind it, suddenly you have all this dopamine to get you to do the thing. And it takes you like five minutes when it took you a week of thinking about it to even get to that point. So what it is, is it's something that impacts so many elements in our lives. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I kind of tend to think of it as more of a brain style than like a disorder, but it is one that doesn't always align with the way we live in our society. And so that can be really problematic. Yeah, completely. And also, if you don't know that you have it, at least for me, I was diagnosed at 30. So I developed so many, like I had a life-threatening eating disorder that I'm pretty sure would not have happened, like all these things. So I remember once I started medication, I was like, I love my brain. I'm fine. Like, I like these parts of me. (laughs) And then I was like, yeah. And then also when it's not managed, that's for me when it feels like a disorder. Has it ever felt like a disorder to you or or is it more? Because I totally embrace the, like, we're neurodivergent and it's just the world makes it hard for us. And then at the same time, I'm like, and I need medication. So growing up, I felt like my medication was really helpful. And so I think that that helped me get through like school without a ton of trouble. And school was also just something I enjoyed. I really love learning and that that's something for me that gives me a ton of dopamine. So I get like really, especially if it's something I'm interested in, really only if it's something I'm interested in. But I'm also chronically ill and disabled. And I have, um, it's a long story, but it's a rare disease called mastocytosis. It's a rare mast cell disease and very long story short my body interprets normal everyday things as if they're attacking me and responds by releasing this particular type of, like all the chemicals in this particular type of cell, a mast cell, which is part of the immune system. And that causes me to have allergic reactions. And I had this huge flare up a couple of years ago in 2017. And it feels like at that point in time, someone handed me a new brain and was like, figure out how to use it. And in the last three years, I have really, really understood why some people feel so negatively about their ADHD. Because before that, I'm like, Um, My background, although I focus more on sex ed these days, um, my background's in graphic design and art. So I was like, those are all positive things. I'm very artsy and creative and I see solutions to problems that not everybody else can see and look at things differently. And I think that all comes from being neurodivergent. But also in the last few years, like I sit down to do a thing and next thing I know I'm on Facebook for 12 hours and I don't even realize I've switched tasks. It's an exaggeration. It probably hasn't been 12 hours. But like, I find it hard to focus these days. I find it really challenging to, to keep focused, to get things done on time and in like a timely fashion. I feel like everything takes me too long and I can't tell if it's a perception thing or a reality thing. I don't even have a sense of time. That's one I've never had. I've learned to like life hack that a little bit. Many people call that inability to sense time or to feel time differently, time blindness a term Rachel and others are actively seeking a new title for. They've pointed out that it's not ideal and it's possibly harmful to name one disability after another. For ADHD folks, memories tend to be a lot more emotional than linear. You'll probably remember how you felt and events that hold a lot of emotional significance, but recognizing how much time has passed or placing things in the proper or chronological order can be tough. I think of my own memory as more kaleidoscopy. All of these factors can impact sex and intimacy, as Rachel knows well. For me specifically, I've noticed it a lot more in the last few years, partially because of this flare-up and the way that that's impacted. Like, I, I feel very confident that something in the structure of my brain, had, like, or the way that it functions has changed, 
which makes some sense because the condition I have causes a ton of neuroinflammation. So like that's very plausible. But also I'm polyamorous, meaning that I have multiple relationships in my life. But I, prior to that, was in a long-term monogamous relationship. And my partner and I decided in like maybe 2016, 2017 to open up our marriage and to start seeing other people as well. And it's been really great, but I can definitely see very clearly how ADHD plays a role in things. One, it's new. And so that it kind of both makes it clear, but also like new things are like ADHD candy and you want to chase after them a little bit. And seeing how things like NRE, like new relationship energy, that happy buzz you get when you start dating somebody new and you're really into them, how that can be perhaps problematic if you feel that for every new person you date, but you have long-term partners you care about deeply, trying to like balance their needs versus like your desire to just spend all the time feeling happy and full of dopamine in that kind of like happy buzz. That's a big one. I think there's a lot of ways and like smaller ways where like I've seen it play out where being in like a long-term relationship, how time management and my lack of ability to manage my time can play a role. I do a workshop called um, Get Your Head in the Game, How to Have Great Sex with a Noisy Brain. That's particularly about ADHD and anxiety as two of the main ways to be like people are distracted or like the epitome of those examples, being distracted or, or nervous. One of the things I talk about is how, you know, when you live with somebody and they're around all the time, even if you super want to have sex with them uh, and it's fun, suddenly it's always available in a way. You find it hard to prioritize that over the other things that you may need to get done that may have a strict timeline or are causing you more stress or whatever. And so next thing you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, give me 15 more minutes. Give me 20 more minutes. I just need to finish this up. And next thing you know, it's like two in the morning and your partner's fallen asleep three hours ago. As a night person, end up in that one more often than I probably should. Talk to other friends who have issues with, you know, not prioritizing housework the same way. I have a good friend who... She's neurotypical and her partner is neurodivergent. He has ADHD. And, um, you know, she likes when, when her house is cleaned a certain way. And for maybe reasons of socialization or whatever else, personality, it's not as much of a priority for him. And I know that because of the ADHD, he finds it extra hard to do those things. And I know that that for them is a big issue. It varies wildly based on the individuals involved. But I think that there are so many ways that can play a role. Some of the strengths of having ADHD in terms of sex and intimacy involve using that hyper-focus and fantasy for good. When I spoke with our resident sex and relationship therapist, Dr. Megan Fleming, about this, she brought up great points about both of these things. Where there's a focus on something that's of interest, it's kind of hyper-interest and hyper-focused for those with ADHD. So honestly, for many, sex is the one place that their mind can kind of quiet down, so to speak, because they're super focused either on the sensation and or fantasy. Fantasy can be a huge piece of their turn on. And so if they know how to use that with their partner and be sort of talking out loud and sharing that fantasy with their partner, it's a real sense of instead of the distractibility, that ability to truly feel your partner with you. Like I said, sex is a place where you truly can feel your partner there. I think that can bring a lot of intimacy to a couple. And then I think it depends on the dynamics of the relationship. But if fantasy is an important piece of it, sex is actually a really great place for them to be truly turning themselves on. Because if your partner isn't present in sex, honestly, I hear this a lot, most people would really prefer to masturbate. To be honest, just doesn't really feel good to be in the presence of somebody, you know, is just sort of in their head or going through the motions. 
Rejection sensitivity, also known as rejection sensitivity dysphoria or RSD, can also impact relationships when you or a partner has ADHD. This is an aspect I wish I had learned about a lot sooner. I only realized it was a thing a couple of years ago, and having a name for it can really bring heightened understanding and compassion. Rejection sensitivity is basically what it sounds like, being a lot more prone to feelings of rejection and experiencing those emotions really deeply. It can manifest in all sorts of ways, from deep, sudden sadness and physical fatigue that linger on for hours or days, to chronic low self-esteem, social anxiety, and bursts of anger. Someone might snap at you a bit out of frustration and then move on with their day. Like it wasn't an ideal thing. It wasn't something they are glad that they said, but it wasn't this huge issue. But for you, as someone with ADHD on the receiving end of that statement, end up with these ruminating thoughts and tanked energy and just a lot of emotional angst. These feelings can come on suddenly after what might seem like a no big deal conversation on the surface. So in addition to feeling hurt and rejected, it can be easy to feel foolish or silly for feeling those ways to begin with. In reality, there is nothing foolish about it. And RSD is very, very common. It's been part of Rachel's experience with ADHD as well. Just an example of it was like, as I mentioned, I have cognitive dysfunction and I often forget things. Like I remember having a conversation, but sometimes the specifics often get blurry for me. And so I had been dating somebody and I would be like, hey, you know, I'd ask them a question and they'd be like, oh, we're doing this. Don't you remember? The cognitive dysfunction has been a new thing for me. It's something I feel very sensitive about. Like it's not something I would choose, obviously, and it's difficult to manage. So, you know, after that happened a couple of times and, and I know that she just meant something totally harmless by it, but to the way that I was reading it, was like, I feel stupid. I feel bad about myself. Why don't I remember these things? And so eventually I just said something to her and I was like, hey, listen, I know it's really annoying to have to answer the same questions. And I don't know that you meant it that way. But if I already remembered, I, I wouldn't have asked. This is a thing for me and it's hitting on, you know, my rejection and sort of dysphoria and like it's making it feel like a bigger thing than I think it was intended from either of us. Would you mind not saying that in the future? And that was like a really easy way to navigate that. And it never came up again. It was just like, oh yeah, sure. Cool. Having the language behind it can just make it so much simpler to navigate and to explain to somebody why that's a problem and what they can do for you to frame it differently. We get to the same point without having to have her say that specific phrase or make me feel that way. And so being able to like use those words to describe it to her and explain the situation made it much easier to navigate and come to like a conclusion that worked for both of us and got to the same point. As that experience illustrates, it really helps to have people in your life who want to understand and who care about and respect things that make you unique or pose challenges in your life. I think that is especially true when one of you is neurodivergent. Those same attributes I hope we all find in partners and friends are often pretty pronounced in people with ADHD. When you understand what it feels like to not be understood or to not have somebody understand what you mean or to misinterpret what you're saying or to be frustrated with those things or to feel bad because of your rejection of dysphoria. I think that's built a ton of empathy for me. 
I feel like I'm great at like creative problem solving and I don't know if it's part of it or not, or if it comes from more having and being fascinated by art growing up and just like having that be a huge part of my life. But I think it all ties together. And I think that my creativity and my ability to problem solve definitely come from being neurodivergent. I think it's a pro and a con that like people who don't fit into like our societal norm, if you're chronically ill, if you're neurodivergent, if you're mentally ill, if whatever, you suddenly become this like spokesperson for whatever you're dealing with because in order to be treated the way that you want to be treated, you have to be able to explain to people what that looks like or why you need that or how they can do that for you. And I think that's, those are all really important things. And personally, for me, I think that makes me a better educator because I think that in learning to navigate it in my personal life, I've already come up with great ways to explain to people who may not have otherwise understood it in other different contexts. And also educating other people has also made me better at navigating those things in my personal life. So it kind of goes hand in hand, I think. Through Rachel's work as an educator and speaking and teaching about ADHD, she's heard about many other ways this type of neurodivergence can impact sex. We've both heard from folks who are so overwhelmed by distractions, such as certain aromas or sounds or sensations or thoughts, that sex isn't very appealing at all. And even though, as Dr. Megan pointed out earlier, sex is present bringing for some folks, it goes the opposite way for others. I've heard both sides of it where people either have an extra noisy brain during sex, because if you think about it realistically, there's no other point in life where we're expected to just think about one thing. Um, in fact, we've both socialized and like trained to think about as many things as possible at the same time. Um, and then we're like rewarded because you like got to feed into that hustle culture and multitask all the time. Yay, capitalism. And I think it's that, but also for other, on the other flip side, there's some people who like, that's the only time their brain shuts off. And boy, do I envy those people because I'm not one of them. But also like for some people that trying to shut everything else out can become a source of anxiety for them too. And that can be like a deterrent from wanting to have sex in the future. There's the, the whole idea of like, um, are you familiar with like the dual control model of sexuality? Basically like you have a, a gas pedal and a brake pedal. But like stuff like that can totally feel like it's extra weight on the, on the brake pedal, you know, and after a while that can change your interest in sex in a larger way, even when it was a small thing to begin with, because it can be a hard thing to navigate. In doing research for my, for my workshop about it, weirdly, I like, because there's, there's not a lot of firsthand accounts and it's something Dr. Liz Powell and I were in the process of developing a, a survey because we want to write a book about this. Because everything that's been written about ADHD and sex at this point has been written by either, as far as I know, none of them have been written by people who have ADHD. And they've definitely not been written with a LGBTQ inclusive or looking at like, you know, there being like a spectrum of gender and not just A or B as an option. We both really want to make that something that's real because I think it'll help a lot of people. But in doing that and looking into it, um, there's so many people who feel like if they can't focus during sex, they're doing something wrong. They're bad. Their partners will maybe accuse them of not being as into it. And like it builds up all the shame that's, like breaks my heart a little bit because it's just how your brain is wired and there's not anything wrong with it. It's just different. If you can explain that, then it doesn't seem like it's a bad thing. But if you don't know, even if you haven't received diagnosis or, and for a lot of people, that's the case because there's so many barriers to access that kind of health and even more to get the medication. If that's something that you choose to go for. And, and even those people who do know don't always have the language to explain what's happening. And so that can create so many problems, just this lack of like being able to communicate around it. It's so true. And, and I think knowing that we can experience pleasure 
while our brains are bouncing all over the place. Just giving ourselves that permission, I think, can be really important because you're so right. I mean, how many times do we hear, like, what's your top sex tip? Slow down, be mindful, focus on the present. And I'm like, now I want to do jumping jacks and run around in circles. Like, that makes me feel broken. People be like, oh, you should just meditate and it'll help you be more mindful. And I'm like, I'll be honest, meditation makes me anxious. Um, (laughs) Like, it stresses me out. I'm like, okay, I've got to find somewhere to meditate. I've got to find, like, I'm like, I got to block off a whole chunk of time for this. Okay, so now I'm just laying here listening to some person with a relatively soothing voice speak at me while honestly I'm just making grocery lists and like to-do lists in my head. I once fell asleep during yoga. Like if I'm relaxed enough, I'll just fall asleep, which doesn't happen often. I've tried different things and either I make lists of things I need to get done or I lean toward being less conscious and fall asleep. Um, Like those are the only two modes I really have. And so I think trying to do that during sex just feels like um, patting your head and rubbing your belly at the same time. And it just honestly feels more overwhelming than it does pleasurable to try to relax rather than just be yourself in the moment, you know? 100%. Yeah. I feel like myths around ADHD because they're so prevalent can interfere with intimacy and relationships and dating. You know, if you're on a date with someone online or off and you mention you have ADHD and immediately the person jumps into, (laughs) oh, that means, you know, or whatever. Why didn't you just try yoga? What, what, are some of the, what are some of the most common myths that you would like to debunk? The idea that people with ADHD just need to try harder is a big one because that's not it at all. I don't think I've ever met an ADHD person who doesn't work their ass off on whatever the thing is. Largely, ADHD folks are an extremely passionate bunch of people who are really into whatever it is that they're doing because it's really the only thing they can get themselves to focus on is the things they feel passionate about. So that's where we tend to gravitate towards. We are already doing our best and it's honestly not our fault that society isn't designed for us. That doesn't mean that we don't have to figure out how to live in it. It just means that like we shouldn't be shamed for it. And it also means that like the people who love us need to understand that we're doing the best we can in a context that wasn't designed for us. And it's the same way that I think a lot of other people who are marginalized in other ways need to figure out ways to make that stuff work for them too. She is so right about that. The challenges around all of that can be really tough. In hindsight, some can also be a mix of uh, cringeworthy, painstaking, ugh, and funny. At least if you're someone who likes to see the humor in these things, which Rachel and I do. For example, in my own life, I once got so bored during a date, like very early on in the date, that I called my dad to come and pick me up from a restaurant. That probably sounds a little mean or selfish. It's not like I'm proud of it. But it also wasn't this, oh, I'm a little bored, this is a little dull type of situation. It was, I am in pain from boredom and I might explode. Let's see, I also got engaged on a first date once, not as a joke, but actually engaged. I asked Rachel to share some similar memories. The ones that come to mind are like not big, funny stories. They're just like things that happen a lot, actually. Like I will have, especially with my very long-term partner, like I'll remember something I was supposed to tell him earlier in the day or worse, like a really bad dad joke or something like that, that like I just feel like I need to tell him immediately, but we're in the middle of having sex. And I know that is wildly inappropriate. Here's a specific example. There was a TV show on E! several years ago called The Soup. I think they might have brought it back. 
but there was this one segment called Chat Stew. The opening sound, it was some graphic and a woman's voice going, mmm, so meaty. It became this running joke with my partner because we would watch it. At one point we were like, we've been joking about it like a couple of days earlier or whatever. So, and I was going down on him, couldn't stop myself. And I was like, mmm, so meaty. <laughs> and we just burst out laughing. Like, I mean, it became a whole funny joke. I could never have sex with somebody who couldn't laugh at that kind of thing. Clearly a very mature human. Other times we're like, if you have music playing in the background while you have sex, I feel like I need to have sex to the rhythm and it like throws me off if we're not on beat. And then I'm like trying to like reach over to like suddenly change the song on my phone because I want to have an orgasm and we're not going fast enough. I never really gravitated toward this like idea where people are like super serious and passionate and intense, but like you can't laugh at things. Sex like that would never work for me because that's not how my brain works. And I just find people who appreciate it the way that I do. So I think that works. Learn more about Rachel Rose and her work at the link down in the show notes. There, you can also find a link to a survey she put together with Dr. Liz Powell for a book that they're co-writing about various ways neurodiversity can impact sex, love, and relationships. The survey has sections for people with ADHD, people without it, and people who have partnered with someone with ADHD. I'm excited to take it myself. If you're struggling with sex or relationships because you and a partner have different brain styles or or maybe you're both neuroatypical, Dr. Megan had this to say. Educate yourselves. I really love Dr. Hallowell's driven to distraction and freedom from distraction. As I always say, we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. Getting books is a great way to learn about how you're feeling or your partner thinks. It's kind of like a therapist in a sense. It's a third-party perspective. If you hear things that your partner's doing or not doing and see somebody writing about it, it's like a common theme. And I think it helps you hold more curiosity and less judgment and hopefully gives you a little bit more acceptance. It's not that your partner's symptoms of ADHD can't get better or change, but it is going to take energy and effort. It doesn't necessarily come easily or readily, but I think that's also true of relationship skills in general. I think the biggest takeaway for someone with ADHD is if you're having problems in your sex life or in your relationship, it's to realize it's often not going to get better on its own. First pass, absolutely try self-help and get some books, but if that's not working, definitely seek therapy and take the stigma out of that. If your car broke down, you certainly wouldn't go try to fix it on yourself. You would get a mechanic, right? I think people have to realize at the end of the day, you only have so much of a skill set. And it makes complete sense to work with somebody else who's got the expertise that you don't have. For occasional hot sex tips from Dr. Megan and a freebie on tips for clitoral play, text DESIRE to 66866. Again, that's desire to 66866. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please tell your friends about it. And I would so appreciate a rating and review. To never miss a beat, hit the subscribe button in the app that you're listening to and find lots of extras at girlboner.org. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Mm-hmm.